Grand Shakespeare Festival's Shakespeare Playground presents Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. At Island Shakespeare Festival, our mission is to provide accessible classical theater realized for a contemporary audience. Tales from the Vomitorium is presented with special permission from Scott Kaiser and is made possible, in part, by support from our sponsors, the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, and Whidbey Telecom. Learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. The Lark by Scott Kaiser Read by Alina Hodges I think we should be naked, said Janet suddenly. It was 2 a.m. With finals for the Shakespeare class coming up, it was the only time Janet and Ron could get the acting studio to rehearse their scene. Out of sheer stupidity, or blind denial perhaps, they had blown off rehearsing until the night before the final, and now things were not going well. Don't be ridiculous, said Ron, wishing he were home in bed. Seriously, insisted Janet, I think we should be naked. Yeah, right, said Ron, dropping his forehead into his palm and shaking his head in despair. No, really, said Janet. I mean, why the hell would we wake up with our clothes on after a night of hot sex? We'd be naked. I mean, that's the whole point of the scene, right? It's the first time that either of them has had sex. So when the sun comes up, neither of them wants it to be over, right? Listen, You may want to get cut from the acting program, said Ron, but I'd like to stick around for a while and graduate. Janet had known Ron for over a year now, and while she'd always been attracted to him physically, she knew he was too heady for her, too high-strung, too snooty even. Besides, her girlfriends thought he was a jerk, and so she kept her distance and didn't let on. For Ron's part... He had always found Janet extremely attractive. But he had grown up in a small town in Idaho and wasn't experienced enough with women to know how to approach a city girl like Janet without making a complete fool of himself. So he didn't let on. Janet persisted. Come on, Ron. Let's at least try it. All right, said Ron. All right, so how do we... Let's turn off the lights, said Janet, heading for the switch by the door. How the hell will we see, then? demanded Ron. We don't need to see. We're in love, remember? We'll see with our hearts. Nice, said Ron wryly. But how will the audience see? Can't we just do this, please? As an exercise? Please, Ron! We need to do something crazy to get us out of this deep fucking trench we're digging for ourselves. Janet turned off the frigid fluorescent lights at the switch by the door and came back up to the stage. There was an awkward silence as they took off all their clothes in the darkness. They gingerly lay down on the configuration of black plywood cubes they'd pushed together to make a bed and got under the torn floral sheet that Janet had brought from home. Ready? asked Janet. Uh Uh-huh, 
replied Ron, nervously. He was beginning to get an erection. Ron sat up on the bed and put his feet on the ground. Then Janet, as Juliet, said, Wilt thou be gone? It is not yet near day. It was the nightingale, and not the lark, that pierced the fearful hollow of thine ear. Believe me, love, it was the nightingale. Janet wrapped her exposed arms around Ron's naked torso. Then Ron, as Romeo, uttered his lines. It was the lark, the herald of the morn, no nightingale. Look, love, what envious streaks do lace the severing clouds in yonder east. I must be gone and live, or stay and die. Janet gently pulled Ron to her face and kissed him on the lips. Janet's smoker's breath was repugnant to Ron, but his heart started to race and his erection grew harder. For her part, Janet couldn't help wondering, was this Romeo kissing Juliet? Or was her obtuse classmate finally getting the message and kissing her back? As they continued to kiss... Ron's muscles shivered involuntarily with sexual excitement. "'What's the matter?' asked Janet. "'Are you cold?' "'No, I'm okay,' answered Ron, adjusting his swollen testicles under the sheet. "'Oh, Ron,' said Janet quietly. "'You're not a... not a what? "'You're not a virgin, are you?' Ron blushed. But in the dark, Janet couldn't see the obvious sign that he most certainly was. That's just great acting, Janet, quipped Ron. An Oscar-worthy performance. It's okay if you are, Ron, reassured Janet. Really. Because I am too. Ron wasn't sure whether to believe her or not. But at this moment... The truth hardly mattered, or rather, the truth and acting had become one and the same thing. They kissed again, a lingering, wet, fiery kiss. Suddenly there was a knock on the door. Was it the nurse, warning Julia that her mother was coming? Hey, Romeo, time's up, said an irritated voice from the corridor. Oh, damn, it's the next scene, said Ron. Yes, they have the room at 3 a.m., said Janet. Okay, we're recording. Hi, Scott. Hi, Alina. It's so wonderful to uh, be launching this podcast project with you. Uh, I'm so pleased uh, to have uh, this. the stories read uh, um, and by uh, ISF actors. It's, it's really a thrill uh, to uh, be undertaking this project with you. Yeah, this is, it's really exciting. This uh, is part of our Shakespeare Playground uh, digital programming 
pivot that we have uh, kind of undertaken during the pandemic. And um, this, when I reached out to you to see if you had any ideas, this was right at the top of your list. And I, I'm so excited that we've been able to see it through to this point and get it started. <laughs> well, it was at the top of my list because I had just published the book and um, uh, in the middle of a pandemic. And <laughs> so um, i just thrilled to be able to get the material out uh, there and to have it interpreted by 30 different artists. Uh, really, it couldn't be better. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how this idea came about and um, kind of when you started writing these stories? Is this something that you've been working on for quite some time or was it a project of the pandemic or? Well, like so many of my ideas, uh, it it, uh, was on the back burner for about 10 years or so. Um, I tend to get ideas and jot them down and then let them mull for a long time. So this has been in my head maybe 10 years, as I said, and uh, um, I started keeping track of uh, ideas and sketching out stories and thinking about characters. And uh, I had quite a few of the stories half written and um, uh, a quarter written or paragraphs written. Um, I think the big push for me was uh, uh, last year, last summer, and I started to really push to get the uh, stories completed through the fall and uh, finish them this, uh, this winter. I finally got them done. Um, so yeah, there was a long gestation time. And then then it came together uh, um, in a matter of months once I gave it my primary focus. Yeah. <laughs> primary focus helps uh, when you don't have to be distracted by lots of other things going on. And of course, we had intended to uh, produce Titus Andronicus this summer, which you were directing. And um, with that kind of coming off the table for the immediate future. I imagine that gave a little bit more space to think about writing things. <laughs> yes, of course, not doing Titus this summer um, up in Whidbey is enormously disappointing. Um, but yes, uh, um, once I realized how much time um, I was going to have, I, I really started to knuckle down on on this project and and frankly, several other books that are um, have been on the back burner for me for quite some time, uh, which I've been working on uh, every day during the pandemic. Really important to have those projects to to focus on during this time. Um, I'm I'm curious how these kind of began to percolate for you. Um, obviously, well, as our listeners may not be aware yet, many of them, if not all, are are. Um, based on events that happen in the lives of theater people. And um, I imagine many of the stories are taken from your own experiences at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and um, other theaters you've worked at over your amazing career. And I'm curious, like, when that began to to kind of, um, when you began to connect some of those experiences to themes in Shakespeare's canon, or if that was a natural kind of, uh, line to draw for you? Well, there were, um, there were stories that I was thinking about, um, and, uh, and maybe thinking about maybe using a longer form, um, uh, events in my life that I thought would make great stories. And then that's when I started to realize, uh, that many of the stories I was writing, um, could be part of a collection. 
because uh, they were all rooted in Shakespeare in one form or another. And that uh, if that's when I got the idea of like, well, you've written two or three of these. Could you do 38? (laughs) Um, And that's when the idea of an actual book came into play rather than uh, a series of short stories that were unrelated somehow. And once I had the umbrella, then I really could focus my thinking on, you know, what in my life is like, what happens in this play. Um, So that was a jump off point. It really started with one or two stories uh, that already had a Shakespeare theme. And um, I set the challenge for myself uh, whether I could do 38. Um, and, uh, you know, of the 38, uh, some of them were were quite easy to come up with uh, corollaries to my own life and my own work and to the lives of people that I knew and their work. Um, there were many stories, on the other hand, that were were quite daunting uh, to find parallels that I really had to work at. Um, so that's, that was partially why it took so long is there, there were quite a few stories that um, didn't come along as easily as, as the earliest, the earliest stories in, in the sequence. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the things that were the most fun for you about this project? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, uh, well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think the stories that um, that have been boiling and percolating in my brain for a long time, it was lovely to finally get them out, um, especially things that had happened in my own life, to get them down on paper and to try to really reminisce and remember what it was like, what it felt like to be in that situation. Um, or frankly, to remember a situation I had been in and do a rewrite so that it turns out differently. Uh, things I, I wish I had said or things I wish I had done. Um, so, um, and also with uh, the lives of other people, you know, to kind of memorialize or honor some of the stories uh, of uh, people that I, I know and love and actually get them down on paper. Um, and, uh, you know, and to, to honor those stories and memorialize those as well. There was a lot of fun in that. And also part of the fun was just the challenge, uh, you knowing that thir- that 38 stories uh, based in Shakespeare was not necessarily the easiest thing to do. If it was easy, it probably would have been done long before I, I attempted it. Um, so part of the fun for me always is meeting the challenge of, of a goal like that. Can I do it? Can I accomplish it? Um, and, and the satisfaction that comes with actually, uh, you know, arriving at a finished product. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I love what you said about the, kind of the time capsule-ness of, of this project. I think there's something so, you know, as a young a young theater person coming up in a training program in American theater, you know, when I was certainly, which isn't that long ago, um, the your work at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and OSF in general is is such a monumental institution and and the work that you've done there is like mind blowing to so many of my peers and i think um having this beautiful window into kind of what what those years were like there <laughs> in the last in the last couple of decades is is really special and is such a gift to to share with um with all of these audiences well, uh, I um, 
over the years, I kept uh, many, many uh, notebooks and journals uh, full of uh, um, daily goings on and ideas um, for projects or or things that I'd like to direct someday or things I'd like to write someday. So, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the work I did was gleaning um, actual things out of my notebooks uh, over the years. Um, uh, in fact, the, the next book that I have is a journal I kept in uh, 1996. Uh, it was my uh, one of my early years at the festival um, when I was coaching five shows and trying to be an assistant director. Um, and uh, I'm actually I've actually published that in its entirety that journal, and uh, that that really. Um, uh, really is uh, uh, been an interesting project because it memorializes um, what the day-to-day was uh, working at, at this monstrous institution and how uh, how hard it was to get used to the the uh, the gears, the daily grinding of gears that occurred. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. The Goose Community Grocer, becoming part of what you love about South Whidbey. Featuring the best beer selection and largest bulk food selection on Whidbey Island. Profits from the Goose are reinvested back into our local community. Learn more at goosegrocer.com. Thank you all so much for listening to The Lark, our first story in our 38-story podcast of Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 Short Stories by Scott Kaiser. Scott's with us today to talk about The Lark and uh, what inspired this story and how it relates to uh, experiences that he's had in his career as a theater maker. Scott, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Alina. I Romeo and Juliet is my favorite play. It's the uh, reason that I got hooked on Shakespeare as a four-year-old child. Um, so I'm really excited to talk to you today about, about this play and this story and uh, how, how this came to be for you. Um, is there anything you can tell me kind of right off the bat about where this story began in your brain and what was resonating and um, anything you can share about what this, <laughs> what this is based on for you? Uh, sure. Um, this was actually uh, maybe the first story I wrote in the sequence, which is why it comes first in the book. Um, and uh, I, um, you know, everybody in training does uh, the lark scene when you're in actor training. And uh, I got um, this idea of um, the lark from when I was in actor training at the University of Washington um, in Seattle at the the professional actor training program. That was at the early '80s. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know how many of your, um, listeners will know this, but, uh, the, uh, the UW professional actor training program used to be out on boat street, which is a uh, portage Bay. Yeah. The building's now gone, but, uh, there were only three classrooms in that building. Uh, and so there was no place to rehearse. <laughs> um, and, uh, so rehearsal space was at a premium, which meant indeed, as the story uh, talks about, uh, people would be rehearsing. Uh, at all hours of the night. So this idea of rehearsing <laughs> at two in the morning was actually fairly common, especially during uh, finals. Um, there'd be a sign up on the door and uh, people would compete for those times uh, during finals because everybody needed to rehearse their scenes and their monologues. 
So that part of the story is is quite true. Um, the the actuality for my life is that it wasn't actually um, uh, Romeo and Juliet that I was rehearsing. Um, I was actually working on a uh, a scene for Miss Julie. Um, I was playing Jean, and uh, even better. Um, yeah, yeah, even better. My scene partner was playing uh, Julie. And um, we had done a um, we had done a showing for the master teacher, uh, whose name was Bob Hobbs, um, and uh, he just he hated our work. He absolutely hated it. Uh, um, he said it was boring. It wasn't sexy enough. Uh, and he just you know ran us um, you know over the coals, saying how bad it was. Um, so when I got back together with my partner, we decided we had to do something. And that's where this idea of rehearsing naked, um, came up and, um, and we indeed had a naked rehearsal, um, of Miss Julie and it was in, in the middle of the night. Um, and we were indeed interrupted by the next scene that was waiting to get in the room. So all, all of that is, uh, that all of that is true and comes from my own life, um, uh, and then I decided that the lark would be uh, the lark scene would actually be a, a lovely thing to do instead of Miss Julie, and uh, I started to to uh, do that as well. Um, you know, as I said, especially since the lark uh, is done in every training program, it's such a thing that you have to do. But usually, when people do it, students are wearing their underwear or they, you know they're they're using a sheet to carefully. Um, uh, hide their bodies. Uh, and, um, I just love the idea of, uh, rehearsing the lark, but stark naked, um, with a classmate and how awkward that would be. So that, that is where the, uh, the story came from. Uh, the little detail of my scene partner being a smoker, that that was in fact true. My, my scene partner was a smoker. Um, and, and it was unpleasant to kiss her. <laughs> so that little detail is actually, uh, also from my, from my life as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's where the story came from. And as I say, it was the first story in the sequence, the one that inspired me to do the other 37. Wow. That's <laughs> I'm sitting here stifling so many laughs. Cause I, I too, uh, I didn't rehearse naked. I, I don't, I, I don't think, but I, I did a scene for Miss Julia as well in my training program and ha have also done this scene in my training program. So it's, it's funny how, you know, ubiquitous so much of what we, what we learn in, in across the country in these training programs is, um, Oh, it really is true. There's, there's just a standard, uh, canon for, uh, for scene work and, uh, um, the, the lark is very high on the list. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think what I love about, um, how this story builds on, on Romeo and Juliet and, um, what is happening in that scene. I mean, everything that, that you say in the story is, is accurate. It's, there's so much, it's so much about the first time and, and all of that energy and and awkwardness and and yet like vulnerability that is suddenly okay that um happens with with those two characters and it it can be so awkward to rehearse that because Romeo and Juliet are in this place of like we we are everything to each other and the 
world outside doesn't matter and getting to that place in a in in just that scene is asking so much of of young actors to like not have the buildup of of meeting each other and going through this like realization of who each other is and everything that they realize in the balcony scene and just jumping right into the lark scene is uh it's it's hard <laughs> i agree yeah it's very challenging and um you can really gauge a production of rnj and the um and the chemistry between these two actors when the lark shows up in production because you know it's it's post-coital and um um most adults of course know you know what that's like to uh to essentially wake up with someone after the first time you've slept with them and it's it's a very very particular and special chemical energy and um when the two actors have it you just know uh you you can sense that that there's a real chemical bond and when the actors are not comfortable with each other's bodies um uh, then uh you can you can sense that as well um, I do think that this whole new trend of intimacy direction is is a really good one uh, for for that reason actually to have a third party there helping you to navigate that awkward um, that awkward uh, feeling of rehearsing uh, you know a a postcoital scene with a with someone you barely know in most cases uh, can really be very helpful. Absolutely, and 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 with with this new vocabulary with intimacy directors and and all of that i wonder how that's going to change this in in a training setting if you know students will say we don't actually have to work on that scene because we don't have an intimacy director and that's not uh, that's not a part of the game yet for us and um cuz i think it is it's asking so much of um of actors to come up with that vocabulary on their own and uh and have it be safe and have it feel really okay for, for both parties. And, um, yeah, I think the, the addition of the intimacy director in, in these settings is phenomenally important. I, I agree. And I, I don't know how intimacy direction will affect actor training, to be honest. It's so new. I do think that, um, you know, the idea of having an intimacy director, um, that actually is a part of a, um, conservatory, actor training program is uh, yet to be explored. Um, I don't know, frankly, how you would assign a scene like this now and, and as you say, leave two young people uh, up to their own devices um, to figure out the physical um, you know, manifestation of the scene and making sure that they're both safe. Um, you know, I imagine that when you start training, there's some sort of disclaimer that we are going to do this, uh, we're going to assign scenes like this, and um, you're going to have to navigate these things for yourself. And here, sign here you know, on this, in this form that the lawyers have given us. <laughs> right. um, but I do think there, there have to be better ways to make sure that um, actors in training feel safe. I don't actually know where this trend will go. Um, I do know that, um, you know, Actor training can be very, very intimate and vulnerable, and uh, and uh, and feel quite uncomfortable for a lot of young actors, and that's been an issue for as long as anybody can remember. Um, the The idea has always been just you know uh, buckle down and get on with it because you want to be a professional actor. I don't know whether that's going to be the culture moving forward for much longer. Yeah, I think you're right. I I think it I think it isn't. I think. Um the call to action is to like not have that be 
the sacrifice that young actors have to make <laughs> to their mental health. I, I mean, I loved my training program, but not a day went by that I wasn't in tears, you know, which at the time was like, we're, we're going deep into the work and it's necessary. And like, this is, this is how you do it. And I, I wonder what the other options are, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very tricky because, you know, in order to be an actor, you have to have access to your vulnerability. You need to be able to cry and shout. And, um, and you know, that access to your emotional life has got to be immediate. Um, but right now, how do you train young actors to have immediate access to all of their life's experiences um, in a way that is also, you know, safe and... Um, uh, mentally healthy. That is a that is a major issue in actor training that uh, I think will be uh, under the microscope for uh, the least the next decade. Um, and there are training programs that I think are looking at it, and there are others that are are way behind um, and and need to to really wake up to the to the uh, the reality of what actor training has been and what it needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Um... You know, for for so long, the the idea of method acting and of like really abusing ourselves to prove how much we are committed to the work has been romanticized and idealized. And I think as uh, we as a culture define a better vocabulary for mental health and, and how to talk about mental health, that has how how does that affect how we talk about acting and uh, what's best practices, I guess, for lack of a better term? Very true. Very true. And I say a lot of it falls upon the, um, uh, the teachers themselves that um, uh, we've all had um, uh, um, uh, acting teachers who have, uh, uh, you feel that aren't necessarily teaching the art form, but are doing something else. Um, that there's some sort of uh, um, vicarious thrill in manipulating the emotions of young human beings. Um, those are the trainers that I feel have no place in actor training. And uh, most of us have met and worked with uh, individuals like that. Um, there's no place for that in actor training. Um, and uh, making sure that uh, the actor training culture is built uh, up by people who really understand that this is in service of the art, um, that it shouldn't be manipulative or abusive, but uh, about um, you know actors finding their vulnerability in uh, in service of the art. Um, that's that's really important. Absolutely, I think uh, as this theme will come up again in in these stories. This is. You know, it because it's so it it permeates through actor training programs and has for so long. Of course, other other stories in this collection uh, that deal with actor training will uh, will touch on this again. So I imagine we'll continue to explore this a little bit. Um, I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about um, how I'm, I mean, you've worked on Romeo and Juliet so many times in, in your career. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what, um, patterns you see in working on that play or, or what you find continues to resonate or what has surprised you in different productions? 
Uh, you're right. I've worked on it um, many times. Uh, so many times I've, I've lost track. <laughs> um, I would have to go back and look at my own resume to count them out. Um, you know, everybody has a take on Romeo and Juliet, uh, not just theater, but, but film. Um, and, uh, um, you know, it's always interesting seeing what a, a director will do with the story. I think my frustration with the way it's, it's often produced is that, uh, the, the story, um, gets lost in, in concept, uh, and, and the language gets buried under a concept, which doesn't really, um, uh, support the, the, the beauty of the language. I've seen a lot of, uh, Romeo and Juliet's where you, can't always understand what's being said or even what's going on. Um, and, uh, you know, that's where I find it, it frustrated where it, it's no longer really a love scene, but it's a, it's a vehicle for, for some, um, for some uh, uh, directorial idea that doesn't really support the love story. Um, you know, I'm, I'm old fashioned. I, I like to hear the language. I like to know what, how the story is unfolding. And um, I do think that my favorite productions have been the ones where the story was uh, was really uh, honored, and uh, the the love story and the tragedy of the love story was really honored. And I think my least favorite productions have been uh, the ones where another point was trying to be made um, uh, at the expense of of I think Shakespeare's uh, original intent, for lack of a better term. Absolutely, I, it is. It's it, it it it's the love story. Like that's what that's what it is. Trying to ignore that or trying to like highlight other themes is um there are other themes, but they all support the love story. <laughs> and it is so beautiful. Uh, there was one production I remember in particular done at OSF. It was directed by Rene Bush. Um and the production was on the outdoor stage, the Elizabethan stage. And um, he called it a cubist version of Romeo and Juliet. Um, and uh, it's actually one of my favorite productions because, um, for example, there was no balcony per se. Um, and um, the two actors uh, playing Romeo and Juliet, they did the balcony scene on the same level. Um, and they were side by side. Um, and from moment to moment, line to line, you would see them um, communicating with the other human being who was right next to them. But you could see that one was dealing with a balcony that was imagined and the other was dealing with a garden that was imagined. So it was all full front. Um, and um, it, it was just beautiful because you could see everything all the time. As you know, one of the hard things about the, uh, you know, the balcony scene is Romeo is often stuck with his back upstage. And a director often has to manipulate the blocking to make sure we can see Romeo while he's talking to Juliet up there. Um, and I thought this was just a brilliant solution um, because you could see both the lovers uh, at the same time simultaneously. And you had to imagine in your brain the balcony and the distance between them. And, um, and it was just beautiful. And the whole production was like that. He called it cubist because he actually manipulated time and distance in a way that forced the audience to see um, things that he wasn't actually physically presenting. Um, I love the idea of, you know, really asking the audience to imagine what isn't there. It was, it was almost, uh, um, you know, it was just magical production. And yeah, in terms of my, my favorite productions of Romeo and Juliet, that is my favorite. 
Um, Incidentally, it was not everybody's favorite at OSF. That year, it was considered very controversial, and a lot of uh, our audience members absolutely hated that production um, because they wanted to see a balcony. (laughs) They wanted scenery. Um, So it was uh, very controversial, and not everybody uh, feels the same way about that production that I do. Hmm. That's beautiful. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Scott. Thank you, Alina. It was a pleasure. I look forward to talking to you next week. Me too. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. Sound design and composition by Orion Michael Schwann. This episode was sponsored in part by Bob Hodges and Peggy Juvie, as well as the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, Woodby Telecom, and by our listeners. Support us and learn more at islandshakespearefest.org.